When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, Uplander, and Dakota 283. On this episode of the show, we're talking to author of Appalachian Grouse Dog, Dennis LeBaire. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 158. it another episode of the bird shop podcast thanks for tuning in everybody today is monday december 13th happens to be my birthday and it happens to be a beautifully warm and sunshiny december day a little bit of snow on the ground but we're going to be in the high 30s today i think i might even sneak out and chase a couple of birthday birds I've maybe got a couple more ruffed grouse hunts in me for the year i like to think of them more as peaceful walks through the winter woods but you never know what could happen kind of got the creepy crawlies right now. I was just texting my friend Bailey about this little fly. I had been noticing this year, more than I ever recall, this little fly. I'd find them in my truck, on my clothes, on my body. Not a ton of them, but I found them enough and I began to associate them with times that I had rough grouse in the truck. I bagged a bird in the field and brought it home. Sure enough, one of these flies would turn up and they're creepy little buggies. They're about the size of a dime and they really move around quick. They crawl sideways and they, you see them in the air and they'll, they'll be on you pretty fast. And I, a good ways through the season, I really started associating them with the dead bird. So I had the suspicion that they were coming off the grouse and I had one in my truck yesterday along with a couple of grouse and I got a picture of it. I sent it to some friends and they had kind of confirmed that they had seen them, but weren't real sure. So then I texted Bailey Peterson, and she said they are grouse kedflies or hippo boskids. And she said they're a parasitic 
bird insect, essentially confirming my suspicion that they were coming off grouse. I don't ever recall seeing so many of them during a single season. I don't know if there's an increase in them this year or not. Very anecdotal, but just kind of a strange thing. Thought I would mention it, see if anybody else listening has seen them, noticed them. If you have any information on them, how bad they are for the birds or anything like that, I'd be curious to learn more about them just because I saw a bunch of them this year and thought it was kind of interesting. So email me, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Hopefully you're not crawling out of your skin right now, but let's talk about some more fun stuff for the rest of the day. All right, got to announce the November Patreon giveaway recipient, Ben Spinks, winner of the Dogtra Pathfinder Mini GPS caller. Already dropped that in the mail. It's on its way to him. Thank you, Ben, and all the other Patreon supporters for opting to become a Patreon supporter of the Birdshot Podcast. I sincerely appreciate that. The December giveaway, as you may know if you've been listening regularly, is a 2022 hunt at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Somebody's going to get very lucky and win this hunt. Next fall, I will coordinate with you, work out all the details with Jerry at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Probably going to be a couple days, couple nights, something like that. Maybe you and a friend, depending on how you want to do it. I could most certainly arrange to be there. I could help guide if you don't have dogs, if you do have dogs. I don't know. We'll work all that out when the time comes with the winner, but I'm pretty pumped about this one. It's a big giveaway and really excited for whoever wins it. Going to spend a couple days at Pinehurst Grouse Camp next fall, so something to look forward to for sure. If you want to be eligible for that giveaway, all you have to do is become a Patreon supporter of the show. You can join for as little as five bucks a month. By the end of December, if you're in, you will be eligible for that giveaway. Upcoming, I think, starting the new year, there will be a couple of giveaways, probably going to be an Onyx Elite membership card, one year of Onyx, ring in the new year with Onyx. I will probably have an Elite card for the Patreon giveaway. I will also have some Elite cards for anybody listening to the show. I will make a few of those available to listeners of the show. Probably go back to the old days of making a meaningful contribution to the show, aka leaving a rating and a review, making a guest suggestion, giving us some feedback, something meaningful contributing to the show. It'll have to be something good, but there'll be some Onyx Elite cards on the table for folks listening and contributing to the show. Appreciate each and every one of you now more than ever. And I thank you for tuning in each and every episode. All right. I think that's all I got for all of you today. I really hope everybody is out there enjoying upland hunting season. If you're still out there hunting or if you're, if you're kind of hanging up the boots and putting the shotguns away for the year, I hope you had a great season and enjoyed it taking a moment to be thankful for every day that you got to spend in the woods. I know I've been trying to remind myself of that a lot lately. I've got much to be thankful for, and I got to hunt quite a bit this year. A lot of short afternoon hunts, but with two little kids at home and the love and support of my wife, I've had an awesome, awesome hunting season. Me and the dogs, everybody's healthy, everybody's happy, and I just I consider myself very, very lucky to be able to get out there and do it as much as I do. I love to do it, as I know everybody listening to this show does. So just take a moment, and if you're on your way to the next cover, enjoy it. Don't get caught up in any of the nonsense or pitfalls that we sometimes fall into. Just enjoy it. Be out there with your dogs, birds, beautiful places. That's what it's all about. I need that reminder as much as anybody else out there. So get out there and have some fun. All right, today's interview. We're talking to Dennis LaBear, author of Appalachian Grouse Dog. 
Dennis and I connected a lot earlier this year. The weather was much different. I don't know if it was spring or summer, but it was much earlier this year. Dennis sent me a copy of his book, Appalachian Grouse Dog, kind of the story of his first grouse dog, which he got a little bit later in life, but Dennis went off the deep end with grouse hunting and grouse dogs, as you will soon find out, and had a lot to share, especially when it comes to sort of the world, the small world of grouse hunting and grouse hunting culture. He was involved in the A Passion for Grouse book, which is a Wild River Press Tom Perro book that I have a copy of. Excellent, excellent book. Dennis put a lot of work and effort into that book, which I had no idea prior to making the connection to Dennis. So that was really interesting to get his perspective and hear about his involvement in that book. Very, very cool book. If there's anybody out there thinking about a Christmas present for a roughed grouse fanatic, the A Passion for Grouse book would be worth checking out from Wild River Press. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Check that out along with Dennis's book, Appalachian Grouse Dog. Again, links to everything in the show notes. But other than that, Dennis and I just had a great time chatting about grouse hunting, grouse dogs, comparing and contrasting some of the Lake States grouse hunting versus Appalachian grouse hunting and New England grouse hunting because Dennis has experience in all three regions. So very fun conversation with Dennis. I enjoyed speaking with him. And with that said, I'd like to welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast, author of Appalachian Grouse Dog, Dennis LeBaire. We're on Birdshot podcast. Dennis LeBaire, thanks for joining me today. Welcome, Dick. Pleasure to be here. I know you've moved on to greener pastures, and in this case, not as white of pastures. Where are we talking to you from today, Dennis? I am in Greene County, Tennessee, about 17 miles from the town of Greenville, uh, with an E on Green, named for the uh, great patriot Nathaniel Green. Ah, okay. This is so in uh, East Tennessee, right up against the Carolina border. Okay, so you're south and east of me. Now, is that is that the winter location because if i'm i maybe i'm making this up but do you not also reside out west in oregon uh no we moved uh out there permanently for four years and then uh we moved back uh east here in 2014 and we have a single domicile now okay gotcha prior to that we had uh lived six months of the year in the mountains of west virginia in the winter and six months on a lake in maine where i spent boyhood summers Yes, yes. The main, the main stuff. I, I have never been to Maine. I would say it's it's certainly on my bucket list. But as far as priorities go, you know, it's a it's a long ways. I'd want to go out there to to hunt grouse, but I would be I'd be leaving grouse cover to go hunt more grouse cover, which there's you know there there's and reason you, to do that. But I enjoyed your reflections and recallings of growing up in Maine in the book. Yeah. And you'd be driving through a lot of grouse cover yeah, to get there too. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do that all the time. I, I even just regionally here when I'm looking at like just a different area. Like, oh, I'd love to go hunt grouse, you know, in this spot. And I think, you know, how many thousands or millions of grouse I'm driving past just to get there, you know, two hours away. <laughs> <laughs> sure enough. All right. So Dennis LeBear, author of. All right. Let's 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 test me here because I. I could say this a million different ways, but I want to get the true way. Is it Appalachian? Yeah, that would be, I think, the the, the truest to the to the realm here. Appalachian All right. grouse dog. Appalachian grouse dog, a boomer's memoir, Dennis LeBear. Now, this was published this year, correct? Came out in May. Okay, and it's uh, 
Remind me of the publishing company because I want to get that right. Sunbury Press out of Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. Okay. And was it, is this a, is it, so is this not a, a Tom Perro production? No, it's not. Now, okay. Tom is, is offering it on his sheet, his website, you know, Wild River Press. Okay. But, you know, that's, other, others are offering it. He's just kind enough to do it because he, he read it and he liked it and made a bit of, bit of a splash about it to offer it. He has a, a very extensive electronic mailing list. As you might guess. Yes, he does. Yes, I'm. I'm on it. Yes. I get. I get Tom's emails. I don't know that I've ever chatted with him one on one. We've exchanged some emails, and I have read and reviewed um, some of his books before. I believe the Tim Flanagan book is is mm-hmm. is from Tom. And um, yes, yeah. Yes. So I I knew there was a connection there, and you had mentioned his name as well. So yeah, when Tom and I worked on the Grouse book, I brought Tim Flanagan in to that project. Okay. Uh, because I had uh, put on a meeting in the Canaan Valley um, near the refuge at Canaan Valley State Park back in 2007 called a Timberdoodle Afternoon. They were having the wing bee at the refuge that year, and all of the high-powered people in the world of Woodcock were there. So I put on this this program to raise a little money for a habitat project that I was uh, managing uh, as a volunteer in conjunction with RGS at the time, and um, we and I had one exhibitor. It was Tim Flanagan, and his work was such a hit. I purchased some myself, and uh, Mike Zagata, who was uh, RGS uh, yes. executive director at the time, used some of uh, Tim's work in his in his presentation as one of our speakers. And so when it came to the grass book, I said to Tom, there's one guy, he's an absolutely must-have. It's Tim Flanagan. We'll get him. And then uh, also Keith Per uh, Keith uh, Keith Crowley, oh, yes. who is the um, the treat the, he's the man on uh, Gordon Macquarie. He and Tim have both done books with Tom uh, as an outgrowth of those relationships, and it's very gratifying to me to you know have my fingerprints and even in a limited extent of putting those parties together because good things have come out of it. Yeah, absolutely, and I've 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 seen definitely some of their work. I'm I'm familiar with both of those guys. I've I've actually been Keith is he's not located all that far from me. I've been trying to connect with him, and uh, he, he invited me for a beer at uh, on the lake over the summer, and I wasn't able to get it get down there, so I have to take advantage of that. I know saw some pictures of of his fall. How did you connect with Tim Flanagan? Well, you know, I honestly don't remember what it was that brought him to my attention as I was planning the Woodcock meeting. Okay. But someone may have said something to him about me. I might have seen his work somewhere. And I knew he wasn't far off in Pennsylvania. I, I, I wish I could tell you that because I'm, I'd like to remember myself. <laughs> but uh, I, he was our, our sole exhibitor at this thing. Um, I think he might have made a small donation for the privilege. Uh, I don't remember. But um, his work is, just, I mean, there's there's nobody better, period. You know. If I sound like I'm endorsing him, I am because he's, he's just, you know, he he's he's the top dog when it comes to to our birds. Yeah, he, I, I mean, com- combined with what I first got exposed to his photography, not knowing, not knowing that there was so much behind it. You know, his, his I believe he was a he was a conservation officer and obviously Correct. an extremely avid avid grouse and woodcock hunter, which I learned a whole lot more mm-hmm. about when I read his book, gosh, that must've been about a year ago. And then I interviewed Tim. I actually, I recently connected with him and it, it will not, it's not unlikely that he will be on the podcast again in the near future. So we'll have to circle sure, back sure. and connect some of these dots. Yep. 
so we're jumping ahead a little bit. Dennis LeBear, author of Appalachian Grouse Dog. Let's rewind and set the stage a little bit and talk about Dennis, you, the birds, the dogs, what led up to this book. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the book later and a whole bunch of other stuff. But where did grouse and grouse dogs enter your life, Dennis? Well, grouse in Maine a little bit when I was much younger with some of my relatives there that, uh, you know, shot them off the shoulder of the road. Yes. Um, that was my first exposure to seeing grouse. The very first time I actually encountered a grouse, I was 14 years old. I was walking down the Nash Lake Road out behind the Moosehorn Refuge, uh, thousands of acres owned by one of my relatives um, and land that used to belong to some of my ancestors, but changed hands during the Depression when uh, people couldn't pay their taxes. There's a lake out there called Howard Lake, and my my mother's side is Howard's. So um, I'm walking down this road with a Model 94 Winchester lever gun in my hands that belonged to some relative on my first deer hunt. And all of a sudden, this grouse just comes out from between my boots. And uh, <laughs> that's my first real impression of grouse. But then it was just a smattering on and off um, with uh, seeing them on the sides of the roads during boyhood summers that I spent with my aunt and uncle who owned uh, sporting camps on Big Lake at Grand Lake Stream. I had a mentor in Trout Unlimited for about uh, 15 years, the late Jim Gracie, and uh, he had um, some interest in grass hunting. And we used to beat around uh, the counties of Western Maryland a little bit, especially Garrett County. His dog wasn't very good. We were actually better off without it. Walked around, and I think I, I may have shot my very first grouse flying with him. And um, then in 1988, I went out and recruited a guy by the name of Bill Horn, who happens to be a co-author, of course, on this book, mm, Yes, um, to be president of something called Falling Spring Greenway, which was an organization that, that I developed along with, with Horn and others. But I was the sort of the, the, the tip of the spear on a uh, limestone Spring Creek trout stream conservation project that uh, gained uh, quite a bit of national uh, notoriety for the way we did things. And Bill had been a founding member of an, of an RGS chapter in the Washington, D.C. area. He was a former assistant secretary of interior during the Reagan administration and had um, had some contact, uh, a little bit of contact with George Bird Evans and, and, and people associated with that realm in West Virginia. And he had a little Ryman type setter. And he asked me, I guess, maybe because so many of his colleagues had gotten too soft and too fat to hump the ridges of Virginia and West Virginia. I was still in pretty good shape at about age 40 and uh, invited me to begin grouse hunting with him. And that's when, you know, names like George Evans used on his coverts, um, classic traditional setters and better shotguns sort of came into, you know, my vision, if you will. Yeah. And uh, it sort of began uh, from there. And then um, I uh, acquired my first, uh, setter with Bill and Lefty Cray, the late great fisherman's assistants from a fellow named Walt Lesser in uh, Elkins, West Virginia. And um, that was a dog that had a terrific um, historic, you know, Ryman type uh, lineage. Uh, his sire was Alder Run Lefty K. That is on the, that dog's on the cover of Walt Lesser's book, The Real Ryman Setter, named for our late friend Lefty. Okay. And it sort of just rolled from there. And um, as I note in the book, I, I met my wife uh, as a consequence of having this dog. So this whole thing with the dog was truly a life-changing experience for me in, in every way. Yeah. Now, that I, re I recall it from 
as I read the book, but it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to hear you say it. You know, you don't your your background was firmly rooted in the outdoors, but again, the avid upland hunting and the dogs and stuff, you know, didn't start until you were forty. But clearly, you know, you and I have chatted a handful of times over the last year, and it's uh it's sort of been pretty con- all consuming. <laughs> Yeah, I you know I grew up of of really a fly fisherman. I I had a fly rod in my hand for probably sixty years, and my father had learned to fly cast in his uh, native Massachusetts, central Massachusetts Boy Scouts in the twenties, and it just kind of stuck in my family after that. But being in the outdoors, being in New England, it, it's it's impossible not to cross paths with grouse and grouse hunting yeah. in some fashion. It's it's just part of the realm, and it was just my good luck that when I recruited this guy Bill Horn. Um, to uh, to Falling Spring Greenway as 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 president because of people he knew who could help us do things that we needed to do and 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 to fit my vision for the project he was the man yeah and it just so happened that uh, he was pursuing grouse hunting at a very uh, traditional traditionally high level if you will in terms of the way he went about it you know his respect for the birds the the beauty of the dog you know. Uh, the whole thing. I mean, I got in. I got an immersion to it very quickly. Yeah, and was lucky. I was lucky to do so. What do you recall a little bit about some of the some of the early those early hunts with Bill? Was the landscape you know all that different than Maine? Was it the dog? I mean, what really drew you in? I, I know it's a little bit of everything, but well, I guess I'd spent enough time in the mountains of Western Maryland that the landscape and and everything attendant. Uh, to the hunt was familiar to me, okay. but what what was the real dinger for me was this dog. Yeah, uh, not only her talent, uh, but you know I, I knew there was history behind her, um, the beauty. Uh, it, it all just just fit together, and I came to really love those mountains. If somebody said, you know, what what kind of a grass hunter are you? I say I'm an Appalachian grass hunter, and that's pretty much different than most anything else mm-hmm. when it comes to this bird. Sadly. We have lost our grouse down here because of a lack of forest management. Uh, we're almost exclusively federal land, and uh, you can't uh, can't cut a tree on federal land anymore. So thankfully, there's state and county land, and that's why I find myself in the in the north woods in, in your in your neighborhood anymore. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, the um, oh, it was just um, it was a revelation. In, in so many ways, just the, the, the entire experience and the way Bill went about it in, in such a uh, sporting, you know, always defer to the bird, you know, a, a gentlemanly way of doing things. Yeah. Kind of flashing forward again, back to today, mm-hmm. just caught my attention with, I, I don't interview a ton of Appalachian grouse hunters and I, I I'm pretty well versed in sort of the story arc of where things are at, but I, I mean, will you be, will you be hunting a lot right now? I mean, do you still chase them? What's like the current state of affairs? It's very, very sad. It's very poor. Um, I have a friend over in uh, Western North Carolina who grew up there. And when he was a boy, his uncles used to use him as like a flushing dog. Um, the amount of um, wonderful forest management that went on in the Smoky Mountains produced he would say that uh you know anywhere between 30 and 50 grouse moved in a day was pretty much standard fare and i would say that because of the diversity of habitat types vegetation the whole realm uh that this that this country was as or more productive 
than the Lake States or New England when it was in its prime. Yeah. But forest management was required for that. And now when you hunt here, you walk on contour roads because the mountains here are very steep, steeper than the, uh, even the, some of the toughest stuff I used to traverse in West Virginia. Um, you come to a, a small tumble down, you know, first order stream valley uh, that's choked with rhododendron and perhaps mountain laurel. And there'll be the odd bird where the road makes that turn into the mountain where the, where the stream is and that cover is, and, and, and that's it. That's about it. I've walked six, eight miles in a day in this country down here, never had an unproductive, never heard a wild flush, never seen a bird. So I save it all up for, uh, the North country. I spent 48 nights in Wisconsin this past season. If that tells you anything. Yes. Yeah. You got, you got it in. That's for sure. I mean, you, so you've seen that change over what, I mean, 25 years, like what, what was it like when you first started, started hunting there when you were 40? When I first started hunting with Bill, we were hunting in cover that had been created as a consequence of forest management, probably I'm sure during the Reagan administration, mm. uh, maybe Bush one. And by the time that we, we left there to move to Oregon for four years in 2010, um, it was just starting to thin a bit. And I came back about five years later for a visit. And basically the cover that I had hunted, and I had a lot of cover mapped on, on, on public land. This was before the days of Google yeah. Earth and things like that. Yeah. Um, it was all gone. It was all grown out. And uh, it was real. It was heartbreaking to, to, to see it because the, the birds were gone. The cover was gone. You know, funny how those two run together, you know? Right. Yeah. And, uh, but, but doing it's, I, I was right there at the end of its prime sure. thanks to Bill. And then, uh, after I retired in, uh, 2002, I was basically a full-time grouse hunter from the time that I, I would, I would begin hunting in Maine just before we would, uh, April, October 1st. And then we'd leave November and come down. Sometimes I was in the woods the next day after getting back from Maine. Uh, I, I hunted literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days uh, in that approximately decade that we had that lifestyle. And uh, I had plenty. I never had to pound a cover. You know, one year I shot a half a dozen birds, another year half a dozen, one year 21, another year nine. It was up and down, yeah. but it was it was trending down. And now it's um, it's basically all gone. Unless you're on private land that's managed for its own purposes, large timber holdings or pulp, production for a mill somewhere and and that exists there um public land in west virginia that's federally owned is it's gone as grouse cover Hmm. and uh, and and adjacent states sadly so having hunted a good amount in the lake states region in maine Mm -hmm. and in the appalachian range Mm -hmm. can you kind of compare and contrast those regions because i i think about that often and i know there are you know, there are significant and insignificant differences between the two, but at the end of the day, grouse are grouse. So I'm just kind of curious mm-hmm. if you could sort of speak to that a little bit. I would say that uh, the extent of aspen cover, mm. as it provides for both grouse and woodcock, and I, and I think when it's very uniform, if you will, it's probably preferred more by, by woodcock than grouse. Yeah, yep. The lake states are much stronger in that kind of habitat mm-hmm. than New England is. Uh, New England is more mixed cover. Uh, you get into high stem density birch more than you do aspen. Uh, the topography is very similar, although western Maine does have some mountainous 
uh, cover, um, and as does um, Eastern New Hampshire. I've spent quite a bit of time uh, in New Hampshire. Um, but the lake states are unique in the way, uh, the, particularly the county and state forests, are managed for what is essentially a pioneer species mm. in the context of a formerly, you know, spruce fir uh, pine uh, climax forest that was removed, what, 125 years ago. Yep. And these county and state forests are now maintained in a uh, pioneer species uh, dominance. Um, and it's used for, as you know, uh, wood pellets, uh, oriented strand board, you know, make a list of things that yep. you can make out of that stuff. They sell it. Um, not so much um, uh, in Maine. Um, for whatever exists of the, of the paper industry in Maine, uh, it's, it's a pulp operation. And non-size specific cutting is what makes grass and woodcock habitat possible. When you get into uh, doing like saw logs and 25 and 30 year rotations and so forth for hardwoods, uh, merchantable hardwoods, um, that doesn't create grass habitat. So there, it's that's it, like it, more know. more thinning forestry, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, you really need to have sunlight hit, hit mineral soil, right, to regenerate everything that starts from the very beginning that's in the seed bank and the cloning of, of aspen and so forth, it yeah. gives you uh, your, your real cover. But uh, a lot of similarities in the North Country, uh, you know, forests, probably more similarities than differences, but but notable ones, and especially in these well-managed county and state forests that uh, seem to be the predominance in the uh, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and, and Minnesota. Um, as I tell some of the locals uh, up north there, I'll say, you know, as I've said to you, I said, you better get used to seeing us hillbillies from down here in, uh, in, in the deep, in the, in the mid and deep south, because it's all over here. And until we're all dead, we're going to keep, you're going to keep finding, <laughs> seeing our license plates up there yeah. because we have, we have nothing here. And uh, thank God for uh, the lake states. Right. Yeah. I do. Th- I think about that. And, I've been to Michigan and I've got friends in Michigan and they, they see, you know, I think they see a few more of the out of state trucks just because it's kind of like the closer first spot. Correct. But Correct. yeah, you, you wonder you and your, you know, peer group ha- had experienced mm-hmm. grouse hunting to the point where it got you fired up and enthusiastic about it. And you wonder, like you said, at what point, you know, you'll continue to do it cause you know what it can be, but mm-hmm. are there, what are the young Appalachian grouse hunters? Are they, are they going to experience it enough to, to want to come North and make the commitment into dogs? And I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I mean, I try to be, I try to recognize how lucky and fortunate I am to live where I live doing what I do and kind of having a passion for this stuff, but it would be really hard to, to raise a wild bird dog if you don't have access to wild birds, right? Well, I only know one guy that I could, um, tangentially call an Appalachian grass hunter one he's a young guy yeah um he has a one one of his dogs is, is similar to mine and I'll be helping him acquire his next but he he belongs to this some lease corporate property like I do in West Virginia where they cut it all for a, a pulp mill um it's it's so so hunting and what does he do he and his father built a cabin up in Michigan so sure. yeah <laughs> you know it, it's really um I cannot overstate how desperate and terminal, I believe, is the condition in in the uh, mid and southern Appalachians. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's enough to make you cry, but um, it is what it is. So those of us who have a few years left in this, 
we're, we, we come up to your neighborhood and we're grateful that we can. <laughs> what about bird behavior? Because I feel like I hear things like, you know, the further east you go, perhaps the more wily or skittish the grouse might be. And I, I have a tendency to believe that almost like from a natural selection perspective over the years mm-hmm. and stuff, but I have nothing to base that on. Do you notice real differences in grouse behavior? You know, I think um, you're on to something there. Um, birds in Appalachia were, were always never in abundance, although for a, quite a number of years with, with Commander, the dog on the cover mm-hmm. of Appalachian Grouse Dog, if I got to hunt, you know, 10 or a dozen times a year, it wasn't, it was pretty standard to move probably anywhere from, oh, 10 to a dozen to maybe 15 to a dozen and a half birds in a day. And that, of course, quickly um, faded. Um, and as it did, the, the, the wiliness, it seemed. And, and that's just, like you said, that, that's nature. As things become more and more scarce, they become, you know, like George Bird Evans said, you know, game has, Game is can be scarce because it has a way of making itself scarce. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, when it when it, it's when it's pressured by predation. Because one of the things you have to remember about grouse cover as it as it declines in volume and quality, that's that to me that's a multiplicative effect on what those conditions create for the birds, which is much higher um, pressure from predators. You know, as as the idea of dog hair, thick grouse cover, uh, bird cover, you know, grouse or woodcock, is that it precludes raptors from flying through and, and getting these birds as prey. And as the quality of cover drops, it opens up and these birds can fly through. And, and you wonder why there's nothing living in there anymore because probably got eaten, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's definitely a factor. So all those things, you know, adding up. I think, you know, made for really, really uh, tough um, birds. And I always, I just used to say to people, well, I have grouse dogs to point woodcock. I had a late friend who was a, a trialer type, uh, a setter guy, but the trial type setters uh, up in Pennsylvania. And he had a business card and he said, training grouse or woodcock English setter gun dogs. And he said <laughs> to me, the word or is not an accident. <laughs> so... So he, you know, he knew, he understood uh, the difference between, you know, th- those two birds with regard to, to dog training requirements and, and the way they would react to, to the scent and so yeah. forth. And so um, that's, that's what we had in, in Appalachia um, once upon a time. That's very interesting. I, I th- sometimes think about, you know, a grouse, if, if they just flushed or ran at the first sense of any pressure, you know, we would never, we would never get near one, but they don't do that. But there, there are some that are more apt to flush and or run than others. And, you know, at some point the, one of those strategies is going to work more often than not. And you may have a a population of birds skew towards a certain escape method or strategy. Sure. Well, of course, a bird that has survived a year, and this is the thing, and I noticed when I was shooting decent numbers of grouse, even in the Lake States, even in Appalachia, the predominance of the take was birds of the year. Yeah. Because a bird that's been around for a year or two, huh, he's no fool. Yeah, he's escaped a lot. You know, exactly. Escaped a lot of things, and anything that uh, is foreign to his realm, you know, he's out of there. Yeah. Those so, are the ones that 
that frustrate you. <laughs> right. Right. And hopefully produce next year's grass. Indeed. If, you know, indeed. Yeah. Rooting conditions. So I just kind of smile and salute and say, Hey, glad we could chat briefly and uh, be on your way. And I, I'll, I'll come for your children next year. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably, probably a good, good way to look at it. <laughs> so, yeah. all right. So when, when you come up to the North country, the Lake States, do mm-hmm. you, uh, do you pound the 10 year old Aspen or what do you look for? You know, I enjoy shooting woodcock. A lot of hardcore grouse hunters like me once upon a time, I know a guy that comes up from Ohio and he won't shoot woodcock. He's simply a grouse guy. And that's all well and good. Shooting woodcock in certain kinds of cover is more difficult than shooting a grouse in my experience. And I like the way the, um, the, the classic approach with a nice double to a fine, traditional setter pointing a woodcock i I find that very uh, i find that beautiful so so i enjoy it and i and i don't mind uh uh doing it and uh certain kinds of cover are seem to be more um conducive to woodcock than grouse and you'll move the odd grouse but yeah if i'm looking for grouse i'm i'm into more mixed cover uh you know some conifers shrubs some oaks maybe a little aspen thrown in Mm -hmm. You know the, the the pine tree here and there, the and so forth, um, because that seems to be where they they want to be. Whereas with woodcock, you know, you can look at some high stem density aspen or or very similar growth that's that's very high stem density, and you're going to find woodcock in there, even if it's not that damp. You'll find them. Yeah, that, that's been my, that's been my experience. Yeah, and and I enjoy both birds, and and it's nice to be surprised once in a while to have. Instead of a woodcock come up, you know, 15 feet in front of the dog to have a grouse come up about, you know, 15 yards in front of the dog. And maybe you get a shot and maybe you don't say, hey, it's good to know that you're here. <laughs> it's always a nice surprise when you're expecting a woodcock. Although, yeah, sometimes I talk myself out of the, out of that opportunity because I'm I'm prepared for a woodcock and then it's the, the old grouse. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I think you you've kind of nailed it earlier when you mentioned that that uniform cover and you know what you described as grouse cover sounded like grouse cover to me the more mixed and the more diversity you're still looking you've got an eye for stem density but they'll use a whole lot more of it it when it's mixed but if you're but if you're looking at a sea of aspen you know there will be grouse in there but more than likely it could be loaded with woodcock sure in the southern mountains um back in the day one of the things that was very helpful and uh, was uh, wild grapes. Oh yeah, I, I, I recall only, reading about that. Mm-hmm. Not only did they did they provide uh, cover, but also food. And I I know there's there was one cover that Bill and I used to hunt. We called it Area Two. He wrote a really terrific uh, article. We actually worked together on it in the uh, Pointing Dog Journal years ago called Death of a Cover, and we talked about you know the succession of cover and this this cover was just loaded with grapes and i can remember one january morning in particular with about two inches of snow in the ground walking through this place and my boot tracks turning purple wow so it, oh yeah and 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 not, not only grouse, everything was in there deer bear turkeys grouse everybody wanted that stuff and the grouse like the tangles some there was a, a an invasive tree that grows in a lot of places called tree of heaven hmm. um and there was some of that that had gotten into this cover somehow. And somebody came in there during the summer and whacked those trees of heaven. 
and they created these little light gaps and it probably extended that cover's life to almost 30 years because these these light gaps would fill in with green briar and grapes and and they were frequent enough and close together enough that the birds could use these things as little islands of, of cover and feed yeah it was it was a remarkable piece of Appalachian uh, grouse cover and sadly now when you walk through it's just like a cathedral because it's all big it's all grown out and the grouse are gone but uh i did that one day and uh a lot of memories yeah kind of like kind of like george evans you know george evans never understood that you had to cut trees to get grouse he loved trees and old hemlock used to be have a lot of of uh, open country on its ac- on its 300 acres or so they have really there. oh yeah it was like it was a farm in fact he used to have a woody station wagon uh that said old hemlock farm uh, on it um uh, it's all forested uh, now <clears throat> and um but he was hunting cover that probably could have been cut twice in his lifetime and um you know the grouse just weren't there they'd moved on to wherever they'd cut uh next right. i guess you could say but uh, that like i say it all ran out uh, down there but um so that's kind of the story of the grouse. You know, if, if the cover's there, the grouse will tend to be there. And if not, you know the rest. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yep, I think I would imagine many of the listeners are familiar with that story. It's an interesting thing you brought up about sort of the when they cut those trees of heaven and created those mm-hmm. gaps in the forest where you mm-hmm. got sunlight coming down and you create little thickets and pockets of cover. I, I was thinking about that when I was hunting on Saturday, actually, because I was walking through a young clear cut. I was actually... I was really just, I wasn't going to hunt it because it was full of grass and I didn't, I didn't suspect there would be many birds in there, but I was cruising the edge of it, which turned out mm-hmm. to be fairly productive. I ran into a couple birds on the edge, which I expected. But when I look at those young clear cuts and a lot of times you're kind of looking at the regeneration and there'll be that patchy, those patchy areas of grass. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I look at that and I think, well, that could be, you know, that could extend the life of this Aspen because my assumption is that those patches may stay that way and create those, whether up here it might be pockets of hazel brush or something or shrubbery, but I'd have to probably talk to, talk to a forester or something. I don't know if, you know, if you see a patch in a five-year-old clear cut, if that's guaranteed to stay there for a while. But I, I just, I thought it was interesting because I look at that stuff the same way. If I see, if I see those, those patchy openings in the clear cut, I, I'm thinking long-term of them holding birds. You know, you'd have to continue to watch that because Correct. as the yeah. as, aspen grains gains height, 
you're going to get shading out factors mm-hmm. and, and some species are going to uh, persist there and some won't simply because of the um, amount of light that reaches them, you know, and how they, uh, um, the species compete in the context of light and moisture. Right. You know, one of the big, uh, one of the big factors, but it's interesting when you come to little openings sometimes and what seems like a sea of relatively, um, you know, uniform, yes. Uh, vegetative cover that those can be places where you'll, where you'll find birds. Um, because you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a, some people might call me a road hunter. I like to walk, um, grassy, Trails. Woods roads that don't see, you know, trails, good, good roads and stuff that don't see ATV traffic and so forth because they get good vegetation growing on them. And grouse are, you know, you can call them easily a bird of the edge. Woodcock, obviously, less so. Yep. And uh, particularly in the late part of the season uh, and late in the afternoon before these birds go to roost, they're out there on those kinds of roads packing greens because the birds that I'm lucky enough to shoot, uh, their crops are jammed with various green vegetation mm-hmm. that they get off those roads. <clears throat> and so um, any sort of light gap or anything. Well, Walt Lesser writes about these things in his book, uh, The Real Rhyme and Setter. Really? The Appalachian salad bowls uh, associated largely with spring seeps, where you have groundwater keeping things from freezing and just enough light getting in to grow small little you know, herbs and forbs and stuff that the birds will feed on and you'll find birds congregated around these things. I've actually seen that myself uh, in Appalachia, but um, I think the roads, at least in my experience in Wisconsin, and I suspect it's similar in other places in the lake States uh, that have good vegetation growing on. And sometimes these, these roads after uh, forest, you know, forestry projects have come through, they'll plant them in clover and Mm -hmm. such to help the birds, which is a great idea. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know you can kind of talk yourself. There there are reasons where you would talk yourself out of being on the trail, and it's largely due to thinking about hunting pressure. You know, everybody's on the trail. Mm-hmm. I want to get off the trail. I want to beat the brush. But I've I've absolutely done that, and you know you're in a you're in a sea of cover that kind of has that uniform sort of monoculture look to it, and mm-hmm. then sure enough, you work your way and you step back out on the trail. And what do you have? You have the diversity and it's, it's very simple things at work that you've, you've hit on. It's, it's the sunlight getting there. Every trail is is an edge in the forest and you're going to have different things that grow there. You might have gravel, you might have clover, you might have leafy greens. And yeah, I mean, I could see examples where, you know, it makes sense to get off the trail, but I'm, I'm not afraid to walk the trail and I don't think it hurts. I don't think it hurts your success in a lot of cases. I hunted um, a place in New Hampshire back in the uh, mid nineties, uh, way up in the top toward Quebec. And, um, there was a gravel road and they had a bush up there called, um, Viburnum alnifolium. Uh, some people called it hobble bush and it had a fruiting body on it that when it got ripe, it looked like a, kind of like a raisin. Okay. And, um, there was a lot of this stuff throughout the woods. It wasn't just along the road, but I can remember a couple of times kind of taking a transect and penetrating that cover sort of back away from the road almost on a perpendicular and the cover quality really became super good you know beautiful good looking everything about it you're like wow this is just so birdie and yet the birds were all within you know 25 yards of the road Mm -hmm. so there's your bird of the edge yeah i've experienced that many many times and it's 
you know, if you hunt, you, you do it enough, you're going to pick up on this. But I think it is one of the one of those subtle things. Like, let's say you do find yourself walking through a sea of aspen. You know, I suspect that you are this way, where then your eyes are immediately looking for where is that opening or where is the yeah. the break in this cover. You know, you don't want to see right. uniformity. You want to see diversity, and that it is simple, but. It takes a it takes us a, a little bit of a seasoned eye to pick up on all those, yeah. and it, it might just be a deadfall. It might be a little a little peak of sunlight coming through, and a deadfall, and that deadfall is there, and that grouse knew it was there, and he scurried over there when he heard you coming, and you know you walk by enough of those little features or micro edges, you're going to increase your flush rate. Even uh, what I call internal cover seams, where you have maybe stuff that was it's ten years old growing next to something that's, uh, you know, 15 years old. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even something like that, you'll, you'll find birds there for reasons that are hard to explain, but there they are. Yep. Or, or if you flush a bird and, and you've got some young stuff next to some older stuff, they'll stop on that edge because they really don't want to fly through the older stuff. It's, it's open. It's dangerous. Sure. And, and you'd say, he's probably going to stop right there. That I've done dozens and dozens of times where you say, all right, let's follow up that bird. And you get up there and you say, you know what? It's probably going to be right in here. And if you do it enough, you're like, yep, there's, that's where he was. doesn't mean you shot him. It just means that you had a pretty good idea where yeah, he went. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you follow up lots of reflushes? Do you do it regularly? Do you do it every once in a while? Do you never do it? What's your practice on that? My experience in the lake states with grouse has been all – very rarely, very rarely. Uh, with woodcock, uh, a little more so, but um, even at that, and usually there's enough woodcock around that, yeah. you know, maybe you run into him again. Uh, you're, but for the distance that he flies, if you're in good cover, there's probably birds between between you and he. Yeah. Anyway, so it, it might be him, it might not when you come to the next one. So, but when I hunted in Appalachia, following up grouse was standard fare. Mm, yeah. You know, because there weren't a lot of them. And the way the topography and the ridge, the ridge country, the way it laid, um, it was kind of obvious that that's what you'd do. They would have a tendency to go where you were headed. Yeah. One of the things, one of the strategies that I used to use there in particular, because of the, the topography had relief and so forth to it, is you'd get to an area where you were entering a cut and you'd find a place where it might have been a log landing and it was a little bit open there. Mm. And your dog would pull up on a pretty stiff point. And you'd say, somebody was just here, and they heard us coming, and they flew to better cover. Well, if you looked at the topography, you could say, well, I would say he's down there based on, you know, where would, if you were jumping up and you were going to fly, where are you going to fly? And I got to be pretty good at that. It didn't mean that I killed him the next time we encountered him. Sure. It just meant that I, I knew where he went, and, and the dog pointed him, but he was uh, uh, either way out ahead of us or, or another unproductive, you know, a shrewd bird. Yeah, but um, studying studying the habitat where it's much less uniform in its in its topography and relief and so forth, you know, with experience, you 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 have a pretty good clue on where to where to go next. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I, I may have brought this up on the podcast once before, but in recently in the last year, I was reading the Evans book Upland Shooting Life, and mm-hmm. he talked about following up on flushed birds. And he indicated in that book that he seemed to get better dog work on that second flush. And I read that before the season, and I, I can't say I really implemented that a lot. I think I've always had sort of the 
it's almost a like a, an approach kind of that you describe where if I flush a grouse up here in this part of the world, I just kind of have a tendency to just sort of move on. And, you know, once you flush it one time, I just, I just, I'd rather find the next one rather than pursue that bird. Now that's not to say that I've never gone after a reflush or I don't flush the same birds again, but it's just kind of like my state of mind. So I can't say that I've ever really tried following them up and getting better dog work, but it was sort of in the back of my mind a lot this year. Well, I can relate to that with George back there, but my experience in the Lake States has been make the most of your first contact because the second one has, has never, never seems to go as well. Okay. You know, they're like, okay, it's game on now. I know, I know what the, the, the ringing of the bell on the dog and the mm-hmm. thrashing in the bushes and the cursing, <laughs> whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know what that means now. Uh, and, uh, and I'll be taking my leave. That's, that has been the, far the predominance of my experience is that, is that if, if you get a chance the first time, make the most because it's the, the second encounter is not going to be anywhere as near, uh, in your favor. Yeah. That, that would be, I think that would be my tendency of like my assumption and my experience, my gut feeling is that's how things would yeah. go. And I think that's played out. Do you, can you speculate as to why that would be different? You know, I just, I just think that, um, they just, they're, they're on edge. No, but I mean, I mean, versus like the Evans, what he was referring oh. to. You know, I, I wish I could account for that. Okay. Because I've I've killed birds on the third and fourth flush in Appalachia. I can tell you that. But the the second flush in the Lake States uh, is usually something. Oh, there he goes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and, and and that's part of the influence of saying, well, you know, let's just keep going here because what's going to happen if we in, if we seek to encounter him the second time, it, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a much lower. Percentage yes. Yeah. We're gonna, we're going to hear it rather than see it yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. So that's that's curious, but that speaks to the wariness of the bird mm. and maybe maybe in the lake states they're getting just as cagey as they were in the southern mountains. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, which is good. Let's let's talk about Commander a little bit. The mm-hmm. the dog I keep staring at on the on the cover of this book and the dog mm-hmm. that I enjoyed. I enjoyed many things reading about Commander. I think mm-hmm. no, no, no disrespect, but my favorite might be the story that that uh, Helen wrote about the donuts and going down to the dock. I really love that part. Yeah, you know, um, as we brought other dogs in, and he be, and he aged. Look, we I killed his last grouse over him in February of two thousand seven. And he was gone in August of 2008. I can tell you that it was, he found, he figured out as his physical limitations began to come upon him, how he could hunt within himself and the nose and the wisdom that, that he exhibited. I had gone through this cover where I killed his last grouse twice with one of our younger dogs. And there was a, there was a four, there were four birds in there that ran together and he could just, he just, couldn't quite seem to get a handle on on these on these birds. And the first time we took Commander in there, he just he pointed two of them. I, I could have killed both of them. The first one was such a um, um, we were we were so reveling in it that we missed the opportunity for a second one. But but that was okay. But he was just a, a maestro uh, with his nose and his ability to uh, to find and 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 point birds. Yeah. And just uh, we it was. 
and and I had friends back in the day who were sort of, you know, hitting me in the ribs with the, uh, you know, the virtual elbow, so to speak, saying, hey, man, are you getting this? And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? He said, this dog. Of course, I didn't know any better. It was it was my first it's your first bird dog. dog, yeah. And I didn't realize that I had hit the jackpot in spades. And these guys, they understood. They'd seen other dogs. They'd had other dogs. They were like, uh, by the way. <laughs> and he was just remarkable in so many ways. And the relationship that he and Stace developed as he yeah. uh, grew older was just a, a, a thing of beauty that's, that still brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. I can remember him. He He'd walk by me three times in the house looking for her. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it was just that kind of thing. And I was so lucky when she came into my life that uh, the dogs, that, I mean, look, of course, I got the door closed, so there's no barking to disturb <laughs> us here this afternoon. But we have five dogs in this house, three of them setters, and everybody's with her. Yeah. <laughs> and even when my door is open, everybody's with her. <laughs> <laughs> So I've been very fortunate that, uh, but, but when these dogs, when they see, you know, the guns come out and yeah. the equipment start to pile up and the vehicle begin to be packed, I, I, I tend to become a little more popular. Yeah. Yeah. I could <laughs> see that. <laughs> yeah. I think that was, it was certainly something I appreciated as I read the book because as I probably told you and the listeners know full well, you know, I've, I've got two setters and they are my first two bird dogs and Hartley's mm-hmm. seven going on eight and Rose's Rose is going to be two this year. And it just was, you know, again, you lack the perspective. You know, I, I saw my first dog. I knew that he was doing good things. He was pointing birds and I knew, I know that he's a good dog. Now with my second dog, I've gained a bit more perspective and I've hunted with a lot of other people's dogs. Mm-hmm. So you, you have perspective, but it's, Boy, there's a lot there to to glean from all you know, and and everybody knows their dogs the best because you spend so much time with your own dogs in the woods, and you mm-hmm. you usually a lot of times you just get sort of flashes or snippets of other dogs. So it's it takes a long time or good mentors to really kind of tell you. But even then, you know, you had people saying like, "Hey, this dog's doing good things," but you don't really yeah. know until you know. One of the uh, really unique things about Commander was that. He, the, the guys in West Virginia that were breeding these dogs, uh, George Hansen, Buck Ratliff, Kay Pierce, George Evans, Preston Miller, um, these, these were dogs that had come down from dogs that came directly from George Ryman back in the day. So if you look at the pedigrees, they go back sort of more quickly and straighter than, than other even Ryman type dogs. And back in the day when George Ryman was breeding a lot of dogs, I mean, he was people lined up to get his dogs and he had a huge operation going up there in, in northeast Pennsylvania. He had a 100 dogs or more on the premises and just bred litter after litter. And, and people just lined up to get them. That's when there was a lot of trees being cut and there was a lot of grass to be to be hunted. So I was lucky to get dogs, get a, a dog in case of commander that came right down off those branches of that tree. Yeah. And, uh, it was all, you know, I, I, he didn't, I didn't teach him anything. I can tell you that. Yeah. It was just a natural. Talk to me about, I guess, cause I think if I remember, I recall reading in the book, commander, when you were training and, and bringing him up, mm-hmm. what were the early years like? I mean, did you, what was his, his introduction to grouse luck? I mean, did you just throw him in the woods and start hunting him or, or how was that early development, you know, with the help of 
of Bill and your friends. What was it like bringing him up? Well, you know, uh, the standard fare, as I as I understood it, for the most part, from you know, you know, reading some books and talking to people, yeah. was to get some training quail and and go through all that uh, exercise, uh, which I did, and and he and he handled it all, you know, v- very well. I didn't know, you know, good from bad from indifferent, right. but I can remember some years in, in in the very early years, maybe the first couple of years, calling Walt Lesser and saying, Walt. Do you keep, you know, um, quail or pigeons or whatever on your premises there to work with your dogs? He said, nope, I just take them hunting. (laughs) And now I got to do that with our latest puppy up in Wisconsin this fall. Yep. And he'd never seen a pigeon, a quail, never had any formal handling, nothing. I just took him in the woods starting at four months. And at five months and two days, all the lights came on and I realized that this is what Walt Lesser was talking about. Yeah. If the breeding is there, <clears throat> all you have to do is put them in the environment, put them around bird scent. <clears throat> and if they have it, you'll see it. Yeah. And if they don't, you won't. Um, I think that, um, you know, th- these are the kind of dogs that, that, that put dog trainers out of business. Not that uh, any, anybody's worried about that. Because right, I think right. there's enough dogs that are, that are bred on the margins that if if it weren't for dog trainers, they would never be even average bird dogs, let alone anything that you could call outstanding. So that was, but that was the kind of blood that was available back then. You know, even then. Yeah. And and I was I was just lucky, just lucky. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it certainly. You've got to again. You got to do your research, and and having good mentors helps. I think, but if you yeah. have access to birds. And you do get a dog that you can just sort of take hunting. I mean, I think it sets up well for guys like you and I. Yes, and and I'll and I'll be sympathetic toward people who don't live in places right. or rarely get to travel to places where there are a lot of birds. I mean, you you couldn't do in Appalachia what I what I did then. Yeah, because the, the birds just aren't there. So you know, people go to preserves and you know where they take you know that ten day trip up to Michigan each year or whatever. I'm lucky that I can immerse myself as I do. And of course you living in that country, you know, it, it, it's right out the door. And, and to me, that's, that's the difference between, you know, dogs that can really show what they're made out of. And even if you have a dog that's, you know, breeding maybe is a little marginal, you can do much more with them if you, if they see plenty of birds. Yeah. Yeah. There's no substitute for it. So the story of the story of Commander is written in Appalachian Grouse Dog and in that and much more things. But what made you want to write write the book, Dennis? You know, I guess um, I felt like my personal experience as a baby boomer in the transference of these cultural traditions that we enjoy in the out of doors was probably pretty common. In the post-war era where a lot of people had just before the war because of the depression and so forth had had come um, to larger cities where there was work from rural areas where, you know, hunting and fishing and such were pretty much standard fare. And here I grew up in a tract house in a suburb, as did, you know, many contemporaries of mine that, mm-hmm. that some of became fishers and hunters and some who didn't. And, and I thought, you know what? I bet the American landscape is covered with people in my age bracket 
who, you know, had outdoor life in their house and, and watched television and saw Gadabout Gaddis or the American sportsmen and their fathers who used to hunt on uncle so-and-so's farm or their grandfather's or whatever. And um, so I just was kind of possessed of the idea that there would be a resonance with the potential readership for this book that people would see, see themselves in, in many aspects of it because that's how their life had gone too. So I considered myself pretty ordinary in terms of the, the transference over the generation of um, me having something to do with the outdoors when it might have been easy to just you know play basketball or sure. chase girls or play guitar, something something like that. Instead, I was lucky enough that my my parents uh, introduced me to these things without any pressure or expectation or well you know your grandfathers have done this for four generations and you have to do it too. There was none of that. It was just Here's something that my that I enjoyed and uh, I used to do with my my father. This is my father talking, um, and uh, and I would see it, and I'd pick up the outdoor life, or I'd turn on the television and see somebody fishing or hunting when that kind of stuff was actually on the television back in those days, and it just kind of um, hit a respondent nerve with me, and of course having relatives who lived back there, you know, <clears throat> out in the country, up in Maine. And, Massachusetts and so forth. Um, and of course, as you might guess, the, the experience with this dog, the, the, you know, the, the, the arc of his life and mine together, it was extremely emotional. It was, it was very engaging. Uh, I know when I lost him, I, I was just, I was beside myself yeah. for months. And I, I'm not a writer by talent or profession, but uh, sometimes I'm a writer by inspiration. And I've and I've written a couple of things because of that. I don't think I have any more. So if anybody's looking for a sequel or something else from me, because maybe they liked a few passages I wrote, I'm I'm gonna have to be sorry to disappoint them. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's nothing else there's nothing else in the inspiration mill. And frankly, I'll be 69 this year. I'm I'm not expecting anything. Um, I you know I have several dogs. I have a wonderful wife. I'm enjoying a, a very lucky life, and um, you know. I got to write a little bit of it down and I hope some folks enjoy it. I hope we raise a little money for sportsman's Alliance as all the author's proceeds are going yeah. uh, to the Alliance that, that stand up for us, uh, traditional hunters and fishers. And, um, you know, I, I hope I've contributed something, um, in that regard, but, uh, I was kind of taken by the idea that, you know, I bet there's a lot of baby boomers who came down the same road. Yeah, I, I could, it predates me a little bit, but of course mm-hmm. I, in the people that I hang around with and associate with, I, f- I feel like that that is a, a common story, or at least I could I could imagine those folks sort of resonating with with this. And I can tell you from from me reading it, I, I think all of the bird dog owners listening to this will understand how somebody could be so inspired to write a book just based on your relationship with a with a bird dog, even when you don't consider yourself a writer. You know, I think most of us could could sort of yeah. conjure that up, but the adoration and, and the love that you had for this dog. And I think it, I mean, it certainly comes through in the book and it, uh, it resonated with me. I will say that. Well, I appreciate that. And I would add and and emphasize that again, his, it really was, he was the life changing experience of of my lifetime. I mean, everything changed, everything went in a different direction after he arrived. 
It didn't, ha- it didn't happen right away, but that process began and it began exactly the day that I brought him home. So that was probably part of the, you know, the inspiration element maybe. But, um, so I just, maybe I thought that that might, you know, make a nice story, but I suspect there's a lot of people that have had, you know, very, very significant, if not life changing experiences and probably some life changing experience because of the dog. But, uh, you know, I was, I was divorced at the time and, um, I just, you know, my life revolved around him and my work and, uh, and then Stace came along and, um, everything got better. Yeah. So I've been very lucky. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we're, we're not going to wrap up just yet, but before we transition, where could folks go? And I will put links to all this stuff in the show notes. Where might they go if they were looking to pick up a copy of Appalachian Grouse Dog? Well, Amazon, of course. Okay. Um, Sunbury Press is the publisher and, um, they have their own website. If you, um, buy it at the Sunbury Press website, I guess I should say, uh, there's a buck or two more that will find its way to me and we give it all to Sportsman's Alliance. So there's a little bit more for the charity gotcha. uh, involved if you buy it at Sunbury because, you know, all these other s- sellers are going to get their, their share. <clears throat> the way the pie gets divided up in this uh, uh, very complicated business anymore that I don't completely understand. <clears throat> but um, either Amazon or, um, or sunburypress.com. Uh, can uh, can serve up a book, no problem. Got it. We will put that in there. And while we are on the topic for books, you mentioned it earlier, the A Passion for Grouse book, mm-hmm. which was a Wild River Press, Tom Perro book, correct? Mm-hmm. We addressed that. Talk to me a little bit about that book and your involvement, because that's been around, God, has that been 10 years now? Came out in the fall of 13. Okay, so close. I was living in Oregon at the time, and I knew Tom from Trout Unlimited days when he was editor of Trout Magazine okay. and had given me some very important exposure to our Fall and Spring Greenway initiative back in Pennsylvania. And he had been involved in a number of, of magazine and book uh, efforts over the years and had kind of fallen into this this better book, higher end, you know, large book type of uh, thing and, and had some success. and. And I was living in Oregon. He lives, he's up in Washington State. And I just called him just to sort of shoot the breeze. And we were talking one day. And I said, Tom, I said, have you ever thought of doing any hunting books? Because everything for him had been fishing. Okay. And he said to me, um, well, yeah. I said, and the first one I think I would do would be on the rough grouse. Well, because of my involvement with RGS and Woodcock and, and the various um, young forest initiatives that I was party to, starting back in the uh, mid 2000s and so forth, I had gotten to know a, a lot of folks in, in the publishing, uh, magazine, writing, freelancing, whatever, biologists, everybody. Yeah. And I said to Tom, almost maybe, maybe even a little brazenly, I said, well, it's your lucky day. I said, because <laughs> everything and everybody that belongs between those covers, I said, I can deliver. Now, I think Tom got photographer Dale Spartus involved, which is, which was a great stroke. They knew each other. I knew Dale a little bit, but the various writers and so forth, I went out and got and networked out to find others that I needed for all the various subjects. What I was trying to do with the passion for grouse was really kind of create a record of the grouse hunting culture. The the top grouse biologist in the world, Rocky Gutierrez, who occupies the Gordon Gillian Endowed Chair yeah. at the University of Minnesota. I got him to write the chapter on the on the bird 
and he did a superb job. I can remember him calling me up one day and saying, you know, I'm up to about 17,000 words. And I said, so? <laughs> I said, Rocky, Keep going. <laughs> just let it roll, baby. Whatever it takes to, to tell this story the best it can be told, that's what we want. He said, I want this to be the best possible treatment on the subject that anybody could find anywhere. Same with guns. Got Larry Brown, um, dogs. I got, um, gosh, his name is slipping in my mind. He was Dave Hughes' assistant. Ryan Frame. We got Ryan Frame to write about dogs. He was Dave Hughes' right-hand man. Mm, winning no his grouse trial yep, for 25 years. He was uh, probably he was Dave's uh, right-hand man and did, did all the writing for Dave and everything. Uh, brilliant guy. A genius dog guy. And then I went out and I got people to, um, you know, treat uh, various subjects, mostly in the form of iconic writers, George King, George Evans, William Harden Foster, Corey Ford, etc. And then interviews. Tom's books are all famous yes. for great interviews. <clears throat> and so I got Art Wheaton to do uh, George King and Tom Hennessy. Bill Horn did Walt Lesser. There's a biologist um, whose um, name escapes me up there in the Lake States that I had interviewed. We had Tom Project, the late oh, Tom yeah. Project. He's in that who book. Who had shot like, yeah, like 38,000 yeah, grouse. He's the ultimate record keeper. Yes. Yep. And I got an interview with him. <sighs> and I just wanted to tell the story of our culture, of this culture, uh, for the record. And I wanted it to be, be beautifully done. I wanted it. All, everything to be top-notch, the best people, the best photography. If you're not a world-class photographer, you're not in a Tom Perro book. Yeah. It's as simple as that. <clears throat> and um, I'm very proud to say that I did it. And Tom's genius with design and publishing and production and everything assured that um, the, the end product was going to be, you know, to die for, so to speak. And it's I know it's probably... His most successful project, I think, is a passion for tarpon. You mm. know, it's saltwater. It's huge. It's a huge uh, thing. But I believe a passion for grouse is number two. And considering the difference in the size of right. those realms and yep. sporting activities, I'm very proud of, of the sales that he got. I did that for nothing. I didn't take a nickel from that entire initiative. And it, it took oh, probably a year and a half of my life. Um, I don't want to say it was a full-time job, but it wasn't far off. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so um, grouse hunters um, that I've talked to have just raved about it. I'm, I'm very pleased for them that they felt like it was worth $100 uh, that it cost. And um, like I said, I wanted maybe, you know, 150 years from now, people figure out that you need to manage the forest to keep it healthy. <laughs> the grouse come back and somebody says, hey, you know what, this book. This book will tell us how we can do that again. Yeah. There you have it. I'm, I'm, I would imagine, and I could check with Tom, I would imagine that book is still available. or, or Very much so. You know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got yep. uh, I've got a copy. Man, just hearing you sort of rattle off the names of the people that are, like, I am so overdue to go through that. I remember I got it for my birthday. Must have been around that 2013 time period. I asked my mom for it because it was 100 bucks, And it... Mm-hmm. Uh, I just recall, like, I know I paged through it a bunch, but, I mean, my, like, in doing this podcast and, and sort of the last eight years of my life, 
the the names and stuff that I I am familiar with now. Like I could connect so many more dots going back through that book. So I'm gonna I'm gonna mm-hmm. put that high on my list for this winter. And it was uh, it was below zero yesterday, so it's uh, it's reading time, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the iconic writers of Grousedom, if you will, yep. um, had to be uh, part and parcel, almost central to the book because they developed our culture. Yeah. You know, yep. they, they wrote it down. They, they told everyone else what it was we did and where and how we did it and why it was beautiful. And so you, you couldn't do a book like that without having a very comprehensive treatment of, of the most important ones. And, um, you know, Burton Spiller, Lamar Underwood, um, the great editor of, um, you know, big three outdoor magazines treated, uh, Burton for me. Um, mm. of course, Jim, um, Paul doing Corey Ford, who, who knew knew Corey Ford in his life. It was it was an opportune time, and it was, and, it, and it was a window, closing window, because uh, Jim Hall was the only living person who knew Corey, and Jim is now gone. So, um, you know, we tried to package it up uh, beautifully, and Tom is there's nobody better than Tom Perro at putting together a beautiful, super high quality book. Yeah, it's definitely something you appreciate having at the cabin or on the coffee table, you know, it's, it's worthy of, of that kind of treatment for sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, with the help of my dad, you know, I, I found sort of my love of grouse kind of on my own just by being exposed to them, but mm-hmm. certainly my, my passion for it and like the way I go about it today, like has, has very, very much been influenced by a lot of those names that you rattled off. Sure. Sure. They were our, our, they were the godfathers of the whole thing in so many, so many respects. Very good stuff, Dennis. Well, I, it was, it was, it was neat to sort of make the connection, having talked to you a few times, and and then you know knowing your involvement with that book, and now having read the Appalachian Grouse Dog, it's a, it's a small world, as oh, you yeah. know, but uh, it's just, it's always fun to sort of make these connections and expose people to the various names and faces and places of of the world of upland hunting and even smaller rough grouse hunting but yeah i think that's what what's on what's on tap for you are you and the dogs you hang up the boots are you done for the year or are you going to do anything else before the season is through you know i might make one of those six or eight mile walks with my pal steve over there in the mountains one day just because i can um my wife starts to travel quite a bit this time of year she's a skier um who's your pal steve do i know him um, Steve Henson used oh, okay. to run something called the App- Southern Appalachian Multiple Use Council, and it was a pro forest management type thing, kind of like this guy, Nick Smith, with the Healthy uh, Forest Healthy Communities mm. uh, news, news Roundup that comes out of Oregon. Steve used to do the same thing out of Western Oh, yeah, I've Carolina. seen a lot of that stuff, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Steve is a lifelong grouse hunter. He's a forester by training. He's a, gr- he's a great guy. He's been a wonderful friend, helped me enormously in our getting us getting us uh transplanted from oregon to uh to here maybe a day or two it's pretty discouraging but sometimes uh, you know the exercise is nice right. um i'm going to go up in the uh and hunt some uh, woodcock with some guys there's a winter season up there of birds that come down late off the uh cape may down through the delmarva okay. yep. and um I, I i'm on a lease up in west virginia where I try to close out the season the last three days, which is the last three days of February. Okay. And um, unfortunately, probably for the last either three or four years, weather, severe weather, has precluded me from doing that. 
So I'm, I'm always help, hopeful. I'm always optimistic that I'll get to go do it. Um, but that's it, it really after Wisconsin, it's just a, a catch as catch can. Yeah. Pretty thin proposition. And then next thing you know, it's fishing season. And, uh, you know, we have enough acreage here on our place that we can keep our dogs in, in pretty good trim, um, yeah. you know, throughout the year. But um, all I can say is Wisconsin. The Wisconsin hunt is the highlight of the year, yep. and it can never come soon enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the nice thing, if you can sneak out in February or another time where, you know, you kind of shorten that gap until until sure. fall of next year comes back around. But, yeah, I'm sure. with you. The recent weather events around here have kind of put me into that mode mm-hmm. now of give me a stretch of nice days, and the dogs and I may go for a walk. But the daily grind of thinking about, constantly thinking about the next time I can get into the woods that seems to be perhaps past us by now for this year which which I'm okay with yeah yeah I think um you know that 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 time of the year that comes you know I I I so look forward to it I've had 10 years in your fair state uh now and I can't wait for number 11 and and it just I I think of I think of George Bird Evans and a book he wrote whenever I think of my good fortune to be able to spend so much time up there very simply a dog a gun time enough yeah yeah well said well said and i think that's a good note to wrap this up on dennis dennis it's been a pleasure like i said i'm glad we we were able to connect over this and hope the listeners found something that they enjoyed in this episode i think that's uh that's a given but i uh, i hope to keep in touch with you and perhaps our paths will will cross maybe i will be able to free up my schedule a little bit more and while you're up here next year and maybe we can get out and chase some dogs around the woods been a pleasure, Nick, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Dennis. I appreciate it. Take care now. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, Uplander Lifestyle, and Dakota 283. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. Catch you on the next episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.